This hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. If this is your first time listening, welcome. You can listen to all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. And you can learn more about us on our website, thereitispod.com. We like to talk to people about their work and how they've created it. And today's guest has created a lot. He's done a tremendous amount around the Chicago and New York improv scene, including co-founding the theater I'm at, the Magnet Theater. We talk about all of that, and he offers a lot of great advice. I've been very excited to share this episode with you. Here's my chat with Armando Diaz. Well, Armando, thanks so much for meeting with me. Sure. And, and coming on the podcast. It's, I think it's been a couple of years since you've done a, an interview on a podcast, hasn't it been? Uh, no, that's not true. Why would you say that? <laughs> um, no, I did one um, I did one in London like uh, a few weeks ago. So, oh. But there's no way you could have known that. <laughs> right, because it's not out yet. Yeah. <laughs> when does that one come out? Uh, I don't know. Um, it might be. It depends on how soon it takes to... Um, you know, sort of get it together. So mm-hmm. I think maybe a few weeks. Okay. And the nursery podcast. And so I, I wonder, because I've, to do research for this, I've listened to others because I want to mm-hmm. like retread too much. If okay. someone wants to hear what you have to say, they can listen to the Magnet episode that you were on because it was a great interview. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and uh, uh, the, there's a, I think it was IRC. Is that, it was like an improv. Oh, yeah. That's a long center. Time. Yeah, that was like at least 10 years ago. Right, that was a while ago. Um, and uh, like another, you know, I'm like listening to different ones to make sure I didn't retread it. Because those are all good episodes mm-hmm. for people to check out. Um, but let's go back kind of to the beginning for you. Okay. Uh, and, and talk about how you ended up in improv. So are you from Chicago or were you just studying in Chicago when you started doing improv? Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I went to uh, college in Chicago, mm-hmm. and that's where um, you know I found out about Improv Olympic. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually went to high school with uh, Kevin Dorf. Oh yeah, yeah, the great Kevin Dorf. Yeah, yeah, yeah really excellent improviser mm-hmm. writer. Um, same year, or was he like what, what are you? Uh... Yeah, we were same year, graduated same oh, year. Okay. So um, uh, yeah, I think I met him either as a sophomore or a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, we just kind of connected in terms of sense of humor. Like, he was always super hilarious. And uh, I was kind of shy, but, you know, kind of had a quirky sense of humor. So, um, yeah, so, you know, we talked about comedy things and, uh, you know, write stupid captions in the the book, you know, and things like that, little sketches. Um, So uh, we were friends, and then after uh, high school, we both kind of lost track of each other, and Mm -hmm. then... um, a couple years later, um, uh, I ran into him again, and uh, he was in Chicago, and he was going to um, take class at Improv Olympic. So um, 
he, you know, he encouraged me to take it with him, so I did. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. You were in film school. Yes. Um, and you did do some work in film, recording audio, were you doing other um, crew? Um, you're working. Yeah, yeah. I was, like, things. trying to mm-hmm. do the whole, like, okay, well, now that I'm getting film degree, I should, like, start trying to get on a crew, you know, like, you know, see if you can't, like, get film work and right. eventually get paid for it. So I was doing things like you know, recording sound and, um, you know, uh, doing grip work, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of anything. And it was all like free stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, so, um, yeah, so n- nothing was really happening in regards with that, but, um, yeah, but also like I was in film school, I took an acting class, with this guy, mm-hmm. Ivory Ocean, um, who had us do a lot of improv and, and, so that's kind of my first real taste of it. It was like, oh, okay. you know, we would do improv and scenes and things. And then um, uh, he cast me in a play. Um, uh, so that was like, I never did that before. So I had like a real small part in that. And um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of my first foray into like doing any kind of stage work. So Oh, wow. So growing up, you just had a love for comedy. But um, you weren't performing or really doing anything like a lot of kids do these days. They, it was, they can actually start their own improv group while they're in high school or something. Yeah. That wasn't a thing before recent memory. No, no. I was just watching a lot of TV. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, comedy was the escape. And, right. And also, it's just like, a grip. you know, with the start of SNL. So that right. was, like, huge. And mm-hmm. that was always the thing that, like, on Monday... Everyone would be talking about like what happened on the episode that weekend, and you know, doing their imitations of like, right. "I'm a wild and crazy guy," you know. Like. <laughs> so, uh, what year did you start doing improv while you're in college? What year um, college? like 1988. Okay, like 88, I think. And um, so you you graduated. You start you start working. No, no, I did dropped out. Oh, like, okay. So I started taking classes at Improv Olympic, and um, I don't know, I kind of lost interest in film school because it felt like, you know, it just felt very pretentious. Like, it mm-hmm. just... You talked about that with Lewis a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, um, you know, comedy was not, like, a valid form of film to make back then. No, it wasn't, and it, I feel like it's still disrespected now to a certain degree, but well, at least more now my school it. has a comedy <laughs> studies program, right. so, you know, right. so it's that thing I'm like, you know, I try to apply for a directing class, and they're like, no, no, you're not accepted into it, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, and it was like, okay. Um, How long did you stick with crew work after you left? Um, Is that what you did the whole time you were in Chicago? Um, no, I mean, I was doing odd jobs and things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, I used to hang signs, um, you know, it's just like a real estate company, uh, you know, like they would sell a building, so you'd have to like, you know, tack on a sign. Like, you get like these two wooden boards, you know, that were both signs, and then mm-hmm. you... You know, you wired them together, and then you, like, anchored them to the wall. Um, you know, so that was, like, it was kind of a fun job because it was, like, you know, you really were only working, like, three days a week, and it was just, like, you could start, you know, at 10, and uh, you're driving around in a truck. And right. in the summer days, it's great because it's just, like, you're out in the wind <laughs> and things like that. But then in the winter, you know, when you're, like, on a 30-foot ladder and it's, like, 
20 below and uh you know uh it's icy cold and you've been outside for like eight hours and the wind's blowing and like you know i was just i had a realization i'm like i could fall i got no insurance this is not a right. insured job i'm right. you know um and in fact like you know uh, the partner i was working with like he would be the one that like uh, it was his brother's company, so he'd be the one that like do the more dangerous stuff. And uh-huh. I remember being on top of a building, you know, so it was like we we're like maybe two or three stories up on one level of the building to, to put the ladders up for another level of the building. <clears throat> so it'd be kind of thing of like if the ladder fell, you'd fall off the first building and fall probably like hundred feet, and you know we'd have two ladders, and so I was holding his ladder. And the wind blew my ladder, uh-huh. and it was just coming straight for him. And all I could do was just like knock it out of the way before it hit him. And he was just like, oh, "What happened?" And I was like, "He almost died, Ellie." <laughs> and then I was like, "The day I was just like, I got to quit this job." Oh, I see. So, I mean, that that's kind of like the ragtime years of, yeah. <laughs> of improv because people were just doing whatever. Yeah. And you know, talk about comedy being an escape. I mean, that's your day job, and that was one of the jobs you were doing. But at night, you had improv classes. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because yeah, you'd be taking improv classes, or people would be on teams, and so it's sort of funny like what everybody's different jobs were. You mm-hmm. know, like um, uh, Jay Leggett uh, was an improviser. Uh, he died, um, unfortunately. Um, but like he, he could busk, so like he played guitar and he sang. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, he'd just be in Chicago, like, singing his songs, and, and he could make enough to kind of live off of that. And I remember uh, this one improviser, he was in charge of, like, these bus tours. Mm-hmm. So that was, like, a gig that improvisers could get, which would be, like, you work on those double-decker buses and, right. and give the tour. Like in The Breakup, that's what uh, Vince Vaughn was doing. Ah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he, he actually... He studied in Chicago. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> if he worked for that. You know? I, don't, I wonder, too. But that was always it. Just kind of like finding enough work to just get by. Yeah. Speaking of that time period and you leaving film school, one thing that you mentioned in the Magnet Theater podcast was that film studying film kind of ruined watching film to a certain degree for you because you could understand what you could. You knew where they were going. You saw moves before they made it. I mean, it just yeah. took you out of the fan or the audience experience of just watching it. Um, since you've seen so much with comedy, has that happened for you with comedy as well? Yeah, I haven't enjoyed comedy for about 30 years, <laughs> so it's uh, really dreadful. Um, uh, I guess, you know, like, um, I was probably a little bit more accepting, but, I mean, I still enjoy it. Like, I love teaching classes, I love seeing yeah. good shows and stuff like that, so... Um, Your bar is just maybe higher for where you yeah. start enjoying it mm-hmm. than maybe the average. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That's, I would that's say, for everyone in comedy. I, guess. I would say, yeah, like, you know, live comedy versus... Yeah, because, like, you know, there's a lot of comedy films out there, so mm-hmm. that's where I get snobbish because it's both <laughs> film and, you know? So... <laughs> yeah, you can't watch any Kevin Hart movie. Yeah, no. <laughs> and not... Not at all. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Kevin Hart, but, you know... No, no. You know... I just went after him <laughs> hard just now. I'll never work in this town. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just think that's kind of interesting how comedy, because when I started doing comedy, you automatically started. And I was kind of already doing this growing up in South Carolina just as a kid in junior high. I would 
kind of watch things so I could learn more because I knew I wasn't going to be exposed to it anywhere else. And then when I started doing comedy at 30, then that just doubled. Uh, I was mm-hmm. still doing that same practice I'd done since junior high, but now I also know the mechanics a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, so I'm really not watching as a fan. And then, of course, there are times I'm watching like 30 Rock and mm-hmm. I totally just become a fan of comedy. Yeah. And I'm just watching as an audience member and then halfway through I'm like, oh, this is what I should be trying to learn from. Uh-huh. I got to watch this again. <laughs> well, you can watch it once to enjoy it. You know? Right. You can always go back and study it if you want. That's, uh, I've long kind of said that Lauren Michaels kind of has the worst job in comedy because I'm a huge SNL lover and he has to have that same experience as someone who's written comedy and made comedy and produced so much. Mm -hmm. He's watching the show I love with a completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. He's not just enjoying himself and watching it. He's like, oh, we're off time. You know, like this is a live show. We got to keep the production going. Yeah. so, but and I, once I started doing comedy, I watch SNL one time, and I'm more just thinking about the moves they're making. Mm-hmm. And then when the next morning, if I watch it again or another day, I watch it. That's when I'm laughing a bunch. Yeah, it's <laughs> comedy has ruined comedy for me. Okay, well, <laughs> should you be doing this podcast? <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's it's just an interesting thing that happens. I guess. I mean, I guess that happens for musicians or whoever who's doing yeah I mean I think you know it ruins relationships you know and the whole thing of like just analyzing things too much you know so I think I think you know you got to go full circle of like um, you know just being a fan to learning what it's all about to being a fan again because I'm sure Lauren Michaels enjoys it on a different level of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like great to see things come together. Oh yeah, which is not something I could enjoy. Yeah, if I'm not the person who helped produce it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, yeah, that is a total brain, a different brain uh, function because, yeah, when you're putting something together, you, now it's like okay, time, let's see if it worked, and then it works, and you have a certain excitement about it. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, during this time period when you started studying in Chicago, you're at a time when Del Close is teaching regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you were you were there when a lot of people were there. You got to see mm-hmm. a lot of people and study with a lot of people. Um, does something... I want to be careful about how I word this because I don't want it to sound like a... a <clears throat> I don't want to throw shade. Um, and you knew him, so... Okay. And he's no longer with us. So I don't want to sound like I am uh, saying something negative about him. But he has obviously grown to a, a sort of mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, he is a Greek god of improv. Yeah. Um, does something need to be demystified about him? Obviously, he, he was very intelligent, highly intelligent. Well, he was the first guru of improv. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm kind of somebody bristles against all of that stuff because um, I think we always make a mistake when we, like, just idolize somebody as and don't see them as a person. Yeah. And you can totally see that because, like, you look at all these comedians and you're like, you, you know, suddenly you're like, oh, wow, that person's got a lot of flaws. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, it's kind of our fault to make them gods. Yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, in a way, somebody goes on this journey of just like, well, here's this thing I love. I'm doing it purely for the love of it. And it's like, this is a part of me, 
you know, and this is something that I have that makes me special. And so, you know, people can overvalue that. It's just like, oh, you know, you're a rock star, so I'm going to project all my dreams on you and <laughs> things like that. And it's just like, well, it's just a person who could like write a song and sing or whatever, or right. this person's just funny. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think art is kind of a coping mechanism. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're a lot of broken machines, and that's kind of like why we can sort of know uh, a lot about human foibles, and, and that's what makes us be able to kind of examine comedy better, because, you know, you're, you're used to dwelling in that. And so, you know, I think comedy could be, you know, or any kind of like art form could be a great way of like redeeming yourself or like finding yourself, becoming a better person. Mm -hmm. um, some people don't, you know what I mean? Like, like that, it's just they just are funny but never kind of work on other parts of themselves. Mm. Um, and so, like, I think with Dell, it's just like, yeah, he's just a guy. And I don't know, just from getting to, you know, hear bits and parts and things, it's like he was a lonely guy. He grew up in the middle of, you know, I think it was Missouri or something like that. Mm. And I remember, uh, yeah, like, um, you know, just... Uh, reading stuff about him and like it seemed like his parents didn't like spend a lot of time with him and mm. he you know was kind of a geeky guy and like was just sort of trying things and found comedy and was a pretty smart guy and um, you know but I mean like I remember uh, being in San Francisco and um, this festival and they had the committee and there was a bunch of the committee guys there and they were talking about Dell and, you know, they're making fun of him like crazy. And it was just like, um, you know, because they were just cast members with him. And he's just mm -hmm. like, oh, Del, <laughs> Del never had any girlfriends, you know. It's just like, <laughs> Del liked to just get really stoned and like, you know, sneak around town and like do what he called spidering, which would be like, you know, being in his underwear with like goggles and like <laughs> trying to break into places and things like that. Um, you know, so it's just this thing of like, Dell was a really weird dude. Mm -hmm. Just like a lot of super funny people are. They're right. really weird um, when you get to know them. So, you know, that shouldn't be a surprise, but. <laughs> it always is for people, though. You know, yeah. like some people hear some of the stories and it's, it's either really sad or makes them go, oh, that would not fly today. Like, yeah. you can't say that to people today. Yeah. Like, a, Tina Fey told a story about being in a class at a scene with a couple other people. The scene ended, and he said, what was that scene about? And they said, uh, um, it was about da 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 They were trying to like come up with some sort of uh, intellectual answer for what the scene yeah. was about. And he let him finish, and he just went, I think it was a scene about bad improv. <laughs> like that's hilarious when you're not receiving it. <laughs> yeah. And if somebody were to do that at a school now, oof, the internet would find out and give them hell. Yeah. But you know, it's also thirty years ago. You know, like <laughs> twenty years ago. So. Yeah. I mean, there's much worse stuff that teachers would say and do back then. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the world changes, thank goodness. Like, we right. evolved because right. it's like, all right, well, who were doing, who, who was doing comedy at first? A bunch of men, because, like, comedy stand-up was, like, something that happened in strip clubs between strippers. Right. You know, so it's just like, of course, it's going to start off with men, and it's about trying to make men laugh. And, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, got follows men's rules. Um, so, you know, I think with the teaching... You know, it's like people like him 
uh, you know, made big strides in terms of like what it could do and have a vision for um, where it could go in the future. And, um, you know, so you gotta like, you gotta appreciate that. And I think that's what, you know, makes him have like a great reputation because he was a visionary in that regard, you know. You know, and so it's just a thing of like, I can totally appreciate everything Dell did, but I could also see him as a person. Right. You know, and to me, like that, I appreciate that more because it's just like, oh yeah, here's just this this weird guy who just <laughs> found this thing and uh, did it and did it very well. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, and to me, like that's more valuable than you know uh, turning him into like Jesus or something. Right. Oh yeah. Well, like I have uh, some friends who are in a band and they're uh, they're not like the most successful band ever or anything like that but they've had some nice top 40 success and after a show I was with them just to go to Denny's and uh, the lead singer like stuck his head in just to look around and some other people at the concert were there they were just fans and they see him and they start clapping and I was like but he's just a jackass yeah you know and he really knew him yeah right and he's like I knew him in college he's just his dumbass yeah, <laughs> like I love him the pieces. He's an idiot. I <laughs> say it yeah. affectionately, but like uh, affectionately. But he is, uh, you know, not this person that just because he walked in the room he should have blocked his, yeah. his entrance. I mean, that's just he doesn't like it either. I think uh, the thing in Us Magazine or whatever it is, celebrities are just like us. Kind of misses the mark on making yeah. the point, but where it comes from is that place of like they're just people too. Yeah, <laughs> they're people, but. They're more talented in certain areas than you are. Right. Or even if they're not, even like, you know, they're non-famous people who are talented on certain levels that just didn't reach their level of success. Mm -hmm. But it's like, yeah, they just like go to the grocery store too. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be reading about them (laughs) in this way. (laughs) And when you talk about improvisers, maybe they don't go to the grocery store. (laughs) You know, uh, yeah. I mean, that was a story I heard, like with Dell. You know, like someone he had someone who had to help him. Yeah, yeah. Clean his place. I think it's great to appreciate what what people are bringing. Um, but yeah, I think we do need to be careful about putting them on such a pedestal that they become gods, because then it, I think, automatically makes it seem like what they achieved is unachievable. Yeah. But they achieved it. They're a person who achieved it. So if you like yeah. have some goals of your own, you can achieve it too. But also I think you got to have the ability to question and make choices mm-hmm. because it's, it's like, because if somebody's like unquestionable, mm-hmm. you know, you're not able to kind of go, Oh, Hey, does, is what this person's saying really work? You know, uh, does it work for me? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if it doesn't like, am I the one that's like messed up or is it just, right. you know, um, cause I, I really do think it's like, you know, each person has to just grab and put together whatever, um, you know, they can believe in and what's useful for them. Um, and I just don't think it's a good exercise to kind of just spend all this time kind of talking about, like, you know, like trying to force yourself to fit into something that just doesn't fit you, you know what I mean? Because, like, mm-hmm. there are these molds where it's like, oh, all you got to do is be like me. And I've seen teachers like that where, mm-hmm. you know, they just expect people to improvise like them. And it's just mm-hmm. like, well... You know, there's a lot of different styles and, you know, and some people have certain niches and, mm-hmm. and you know, and so they're going to have, like, preferences for, you know, a lot of times they have preferences for people to play like them. 
And it's just like, well, you know, that's not the whole scope of things. And right. so why should you beat yourself up just because you don't play like a certain improviser? Oh, yeah. That's something I'm starting to learn. I've, I've been kind of learning over the last year of just like, oh, Ben Schwartz is just a different kind of person than mm-hmm. I am. And he thinks differently and, and yeah. talks faster than I do. And so I can't be him. I can be me, though, and that should be all right for me. Like, the best version of me is what I should be, mm-hmm. not some broke version of Jason Manzoukas or, yeah. or whoever, you know? Um, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, because, like, some people are really good at seeing patterns, and they're the ones that are doing all the tag-outs, and mm-hmm. um, they see connections and things like that. Um, you know, and some people are just, like, really good at humanizing things, that they just have an instinct for, like, you know, um, how would somebody really internalize this weird idea and make it funny and human? Uh, and some people, you know, they're just very dry and deadpan and, you know, they couldn't, uh, you know, they couldn't act at all, but like, they're just super funny, you mm-hmm. know, like, like, um, you know, like Adam McKay, you know, he's Adam McKay. Um, One of the greatest minds in comedy. Yeah, and he, he couldn't do object work to save his life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, no, yeah. It's all his voice, you know, and uh, his ideas, you know. Um, you know, when you see somebody like a Pete Holney, uh, you know, he just gets to do every, every kind of like, you know, physical work and like mm-hmm. sound effect possible, you know, and it's just like genius you know, or you see somebody could do lots of characterizations, like a Brian Stack, you know, or mm-hmm. um, somebody who's just, you know, really smart, you know, like Noah Gregoropoulos, mm-hmm. or, you know, great character actors like, you know, Amy uh, Poehler, or, yeah, yeah. you know, Tina Fey just being a smart, you mm-hmm. know. Well, um, yeah, that's another thing of like, you mentioned how smart Tina Fey is. I'm not as smart as Tina Fey. Yeah, you and I, I don't as not her. smart as her. <laughs> but you know, she's one of my heroes. Yeah. And I had to realize, like, she's just a smarter person than me, and I'm not dumb, so I can yeah. still find something that works for me. But I, I need to get it out of my head that I can do what she did. Yeah, I mean. You know, it's okay to aspire to know more, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things where it's like you try and fake it, you know, and it's like, well, you try and over-intellectualize, and it's just like that's not your thing, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, yeah, you got to find out who you are, because that's going to be the best improv you're going to do. That's something that I think I could only have ended up learning if, uh, if I was studying here, because that is something that is so enforced and reinforced here is... Mm -hmm we're trying to make you the best version of yourself and and you know what is the what kind of improviser are you but before moving up here and studying here i I really would have thought it as Mm -hmm. like oh improv uh you do it this way or like playing guitar you do it this way and there's one way to be uh great at guitar but they're different kinds of guitarists and they're different genres you can play yeah you know so it's kind of like well, you have a bluesy sort of style, so that's yeah. your thing. That's who you are, and you can be great at that. Don't try to be great uh, at heavy metal. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's what you are. Well, it's like Miles Davis admitting mm-hmm. this. is like he's never going to be Dizzy Gillespie, so it's just kind of more of like, you know, not 
a million notes just like play the notes that he thinks are right and feel yeah. right yeah you know that's a really great way to put it because I was actually just thinking like we're kind of studying jazz in mm-hmm. a way here yeah um, and I love that you mentioned uh, a number of people people I imagine you saw when you were studying in Chicago and you have seen a lot of people a lot of we're talking about success here and different kinds of success but you've seen all sorts of success I mean you've seen people that you were around getting on SNL you've seen you I don't know how well you knew Chris Farley but you remember him from Chicago Mm -hmm. Um, but you've seen all these different levels of success for people and you've also seen what success can be evolve. I mean, mm-hmm. when you were starting, SNL was kind of like the thing, but there's so many avenues now. Yeah. Um, on television, outside of television. And I think people can still kind of get their eyes on one particular prize mm-hmm. in entertainment and in comedy. And I was wondering, because of all the different things you've seen, people's different successes and failures, what sort of advice would you give people coming up? Well, I do kind of stick to what we were just saying. It's like, get to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, it's just you can only do what you can do, and you're going to be most happy uh, with things that suit you. Because like at times, like I've heard people who are extremely unhappy, where they're in situations where like they're working a job where it's just they just did not like the work, you know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and it didn't suit them. Um, and I guess we're fortunate that like we are in a comedy renaissance of like mm-hmm. comedy has become a very respected force. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that. It's a political force now. You know, I mean, it's a way uh, a lot of people get their news. Um, uh, people pay attention to comedy shows, but then there's all kinds of different types. You know, of just like uh, whether it's like stand up or mm-hmm. um, you know uh, storytelling or um, SNL sketch. Uh, sitcoms, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, people doing comedy podcasts and, mm-hmm. and uh, webisodes and things like that, and and that like it's more available for everybody to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could see a show like Broad City or something like that, yeah. where um, it's like, yes, you know, uh, that you know that's available to people now, and like you just, you know, you got something. And got an idea, try and make it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, because really, I mean, there's an industry, um, you know, and it's, it's great to make money and it's great to get paid. Um, uh, but it's also the kind of thing where it's just like it's a marketplace mm-hmm. and people, you know, they learn to be savvy about like how to market themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but in a way, if like there's, if you're, just another person trying to imitate what everybody else is trying to imitate, I think you're not going to do as well as just mm-hmm. sort of something that's like, this is uniquely you and you're passionate right. about. And, right, right. You know, and, and, and at the end of the day, it's like, at least you tried it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, at least you gave it a go as opposed to sort of denying who you are and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and it's like, you know, not everyone's going to make it. Most people aren't going to make it, you know. That might be a realization for people, but... Yeah, and it also depends on what making it is for some people. Yeah. That's so subjective yeah. now. Because there's so many ways that people can do it. Like, there, there are people who are making a living 
who are by no means famous. Yeah. um, Because they're just doing like little YouTube videos or something like that. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's making it. But to a lot of people, because they're not famous, uh, that's not making it. Um, And I think, you know, the, the more strict someone becomes about what making it is, yeah, the less, yeah. the less likely they are to get on that level. But I, I think you're right, though, that people need to find who they are and try to do yeah. that instead of trying to imitate being somebody. But I would even say, you know, once people, because everyone knows the story, like, oh, well, Abby and Alana couldn't get on a house team, so they started doing their, their webisodes, and then that got, so that's what the direction I'm going to go. Well, maybe that won't work for you. Yeah. You or know. Nick Kroll, same thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you just do his own thing and... Right. Like, do your own thing truly. Don't do what someone else did in the guise of you doing your own thing. Yeah. Because that's still trying to imitate somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and there's always going to be reason to complain, you know, because you're <laughs> like, hey, you know, uh, I get work as a comic actor, but I really want to be an SNL, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I'm just a featured player in SNL, but I want to be like a regular player, mm-hmm. you know. Where's my sitcom after SNL? Where's my movie? You know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be, I want an Academy Award, you know, like, um, you know, I want to run for president, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> and all of those things are things people have done. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not all afforded to everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's funny, like, you know, speaking of someone being on SNL and getting big and also running for president. Like I just heard Chris Rock say the other day on his Instagram, if I ever ran for president, I think now is the time I would do it. Yeah. Like that's way more serious of an answer than I ever expected to hear. Yeah. A former SNL cast member say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at, um, uh, Al Franken. Yeah. Like, uh, he was, I think he was secretly preparing to run for president, mm-hmm. you know, until the scandal happened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'm not just finding him in any way, but, but like he was, you know, like you hear him in interviews and hear him like really work in the politics and trying to work across the aisle and be friends with Republicans in, in a civil way and stuff like that. So I think he's kind of like the first uh, comedian to, you know, I mean, I guess maybe before him, Fred Grandy from uh, Love Boat. Um, mm. Yeah, he was a Republican senator from, I think, Iowa or whatever. Mm. But he was gopher on, on Love Boat. Okay. Fred Grandy. Um, uh, you know, so, I mean, like, I think, um, yeah, uh, you know, there's no reason why somebody with comedy background can't, right. you know, become president. Right? Yeah, you think about, well, our current president is less experience than Al Franken. Sure. <laughs> um, and also not as smart as Adam McKay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd vote for a Tina Fey. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Genuinely. You know, and also another thing is having come along with a lot of these people, like we mentioned Adam McKay, at that time, you probably couldn't appreciate it the way you can now, necessarily. Or maybe you can, but before... Somebody like obviously there you were seeing a lot of brilliant work and you knew it was brilliant work at the time, <laughs> but um, you also didn't know Adam McKay was going to win an Oscar mm-hmm. and become the t- you know and, and be an Oscar nominated director the way he has become. Probably not surprised, but at the same time you didn't know that in 1994. 
No, I mean, like, you would recognize that people would do awesome stuff, <laughs> right? you know, but when it's the kind of thing of, like, you know, you're like, oh, okay, well, um, uh, here you are, and uh, you're hanging out with somebody, and you're both just trying to scrape some money together to get some, like, a burrito, uh-huh. you know, it's just like, or, you know, just get a, get a beer at a bar or something like that. You don't think, like, oh, this person's going to win an Oscar, you know, it's just like... So, um, yeah, um, but, uh, yeah, but you still get those dreams, you know what I mean? Like, I think everybody does, and I think, um, you know, there's just times where you'd be watching a show, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is, like, you know, super, super awesome. But I think, like, the first thing was just, like, um, uh, you know, Mike Myers, like, when he did his first show at SNL, because I remember seeing him do Heralds and stuff, and, um... You know, it's just like, oh, okay, this guy Mike, he's going to SNL, so, uh, yeah. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> and then watch him, and then suddenly he just like, he's just gangbusters on the first show. Yeah. It's like crazy. Yeah, I he's, I think, one of the best who's been on that show just because he could write and write and write so many different kinds of things. And I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but somebody said, I think it was Jay Moore, said that, like, his stuff hardly got rewritten. Yeah. Because it was just so good to begin with. Yeah. And he would write a lot of stuff alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you yeah, you were definitely seeing a lot of people. When you look back, do you see it as like, wow, I was really in a a very unique time period in comedy history to to been around all of that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And it felt that way, you know, especially like in the middle 90s, like just because, um, you know, it just, things just started to happen. And so, you know, a bunch of Improv Olympic people getting cast mm-hmm. at Second City, you know, and that seemed, Second City seemed like the big far away thing. And did you go over to the Second City much? Um, yeah, I mean, I would see the reviews, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes you, like, go watch the sets, um, you know. Um, but, you know, it's kind of thing. It's like they do one show. Right. So, right, right. Um, you know, so if you're going to catch something different, it would be like catching the improv sets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know a ton about uh, Second City, but I just haven't... A, a, it seems like... There were a lot of people who did both, but there were some who just did one or the other. Uh-huh. Um, and I like like a Colbert and Carell were just exclusively Second City, weren't they? Like I never I heard any they stories of them. Did Improv Olympic? Oh, okay. okay. Like like what Colbert did? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, um, uh, I heard that in a podcast. So, <laughs> but like I just don't I don't recall mm-hmm. him at all. You know, but, like I remember seeing him on the main stage. Right. You know, you don't recall him in any classes that you were. Yeah, I mean, like he was before. You know, I mean, like so. Um, uh, but also, it's like Improv Olympic didn't have a theater back then. Right. So it wasn't like a real legitimate place. It was like, hey, here's some classes <laughs> yeah. that you could go show up to wherever. <laughs> I've, bar they were in. I've heard the story about that. I think Charna was saying something about like like Andy Richter was just the guy with the truck who would just be like, "Hey, where are we going? You know, just load everything up on the truck. Yeah, How yeah. far are we going to next?" Um, no, that's just a fat. I'm I'm really fascinated by that time period because so many of the people I admire and and, and just 
think are fantastic were kind of there at the same yeah. time. Well, I mean, I went to film school with Andy Richter. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, I think, I think he might have. I might have made the connection between him and like improv because like I would go to the film parties and to the improv Olympic parties. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. you know, it's just like he's like a super funny guy. You know, yeah. like you should come check this out and. You know, but it was also like kind of there too, because it was like, um, uh, you know, like you're just in Chicago, so it's like people would like, you know, catch comedy and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah, I remember seeing like a, a film with Pat, um, with um, uh, Dave Pasquazi in it <laughs> that I, you know, uh, one of my teachers directed, um, and I didn't know who he was at the time, <laughs> you know. But it's just like, yeah, you know, it's that kind of crossover. Um, yeah, and like um, Jim Zulovic was uh, uh, at my school too. I think he was studying acting though. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was a Second City guy and all that, you know. I, I want to advance to when you end up moving to New York. When did that happen? Like, when did you. Uh, it was May of 1998. Okay. And. Um, had the Armando form already been created? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's been around for a while. Okay, so it, it was already a few years around by 98. Yeah. Okay. Now, you've told me the story before. I'm sure you've told it a million times. But will you explain uh, the story for our listeners if they haven't heard how that form got created? Yeah, it's like everything's pretty accidental. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and so... Uh, Basically, it was just, um, you know, they were looking to put some kind of alumni show together. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd quit Improv Olympic by then. I had gone back to film school, graduated. You know, I was living with Dorf. Uh, uh, and so, you know, both McKay and Dave Keckner uh, uh, and Kevin were all at Second City, you mm-hmm. know, and... Um, you know, they kind of missed just doing the regular improv because, you know, when you're doing Turco or you're doing, like, main stage or something like that, you're, you know, you're playing the review, basically, mm-hmm. and then you're doing just improv sets, um, but it's not the same. It's just kind of, you know, you're not... The cast um, would have a few improv Olympic people in it, so it wouldn't mm-hmm. be the same thing of, like, everyone, like, having studied Harold and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, you know, it would just be, like, you do, like, a bunch of scenes... Mm-hmm. that were improvised and mm-hmm. so um, so they're like oh yeah you know like let's go back to doing like really pure work and these guys were like really hardcore about that mm-hmm. and um, you know I start drawing up cast list or whatever and then they're like well you know we want to have some way of managing this or making sure people are uh, serving the work and then McKay was just like why don't we call it the Armando Diaz experience and like everybody's got to like serve Armando and it's just like <laughs> it's such a crazy insane idea and it, you had told me that someone had passed away, like the fir- for the, the first yeah, time like it was done. Yeah, like a year previous. No, we um, the first time I improvised monologues was like a year before. Uh-huh. And, um, uh huh. And it was our a friend, memorial show. Yeah, yeah. Our friend Rick Roman had died, uh-huh. and and they did a uh, a memorial show to like raise money to have a scholarship in his name at Second City. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Adam had booked me. Because, you know, I was good friends with Rick, and mm-hmm. I didn't have a group, you know. I wasn't improvising. I wasn't performing with anybody. So he just booked me alone. Um, and, and you wanted to get on the show to yeah, yeah. pay so, respect. 
Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't really have anything. And um, it was just build 10 minutes of Armando Diaz. And I didn't have anything. So it just got up to the point where, you know, the lights went up. I went out there and I was like, hey, my name's Armando. I knew Rick. Uh, I'm not going to bullshit you guys. I don't have anything for the show. I just wanted to be in it. And then everybody's like laughing. And uh, and then I just asked, you know, I had people ask questions about uh, Rick and I just told stories. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they ended up being funny stories and it killed. And so that's kind of like the first time I had improvised monologues. Mm-hmm. You know, it was definitely not the first time anybody improvised right. a monologue or did a show like that. But it was something that was improv adjacent. Yeah. With that community. And it was just something that's kind of like, we were looking for something to create a form. So that was the thing I could think of that I could do. Did anyone that night do improv off of those stories you told me? No, no. I was just talking to the audience telling stories. And so when you started developing it, or, you know, like I guess you you said it was uh, David Kettner and and McKay and, and Kevin Dorf who were... Saying, let's come up with something. and Yeah, I mean, they basically just, you know, they made a cast list. Mm-hmm. They booked the show. Um, you know, they just booked the Armando Diaz experience. <laughs> no knowledge of, like, what the form was, you know, or what my purpose was, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, that was the great thing about, like, uh, you know, Adam and, and like, uh, Dave, like, Dave would just, he'd be like, okay, let's do it, you know, like, and it was the kind of thing where it happened very quickly because that night when they were discussing the show, the next afternoon was when I got a call from Dave and he goes like, I talked to Sharna, she loves it, we're going to do it. And it's like, what? It's like, they're on a Diaz experience. And it was just like, okay, great, it's booked, I got no choice in this thing. Um, and so, you know, uh, it was like maybe we had like maybe less than two months before the first show. But I kept on asking Adam, I was like, what is this show? What am I supposed to do? And Adam would be like, just do whatever. You know, it'll be great. Um, yeah, you mentioned that to me before and said, like, these guys are super confident guys. Yeah. It's almost intimidating how confident they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, they're bringing you in. Yeah, people could use a bit of that because they believe in their ideas. And so, right, right. me, you know, I'm living off of their confidence. Um, you know, so it was like we had... They finally like set up two rehearsals with Dell, and they were like, you know, two weeks before the show opened, um, you know, and so I guess in their mind, it was simple because they had like the best list of every improviser in the world, um, so it's kind of like you got a cast of mm-hmm. the greatest people. So how much could I fuck it up? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, who all was on that cast? Well, I'm trying to remember exactly who was in the first show, but it was definitely. Um, no Gregoropoulos, Dave Keckner, Miriam Tolan, Brian Stack, Pete Zaradnik, I want to say Pat Finn, maybe? I assume McKay and... Uh, yeah, McKay, Dorf, maybe? Dorf, Besser, Polar, I think Walsh was in it. Definitely Ian, mm-hmm. Miles Stroth, Rachel Dratch, this is amazing improviser. Mm-hmm. I think Laura Kraft, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it's just like it was insane. It was just like, you know, it's just a dream team of people. So. Right. That's an amazing team. So, yeah, how could it how could it go wrong? Right. right. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. That's a that's a veritable who's who. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> of, of comedy and uh, of, of many things I love. Uh, uh, 
Um, that vacuum cleaner in the background looks, uh, you know, things have to get clean, guys. That's right, you know. That's a big part of improvising, is being a clean place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. this is the training center that we're mm-hmm. in. And uh, they got to keep it clean. Yeah, that's Pat May on the vacuum cleaner. Oh, he's another a fun great, improviser. Oh, yeah. gosh, so great. And great at video games. He is great at video games. He has a great show here. We improvise. He plays video games and does improv scenes mm-hmm. um, that are just uh, wild. Um, instead of a story, it's a video game that's being played. Um, so the Armando has grown into this thing where all these different theaters are doing it. The theater that I was that I first studied at in South Carolina, uh, the flagship team was uh, at the time the only flagship team was performing the Armando Diaz, and I just thought it was what someone called it. I mm-hmm. had no idea it was the name of a real person. Yeah, uh, and then. When I came up here and found out, like, oh no, it was before I came up here, I found out, like, oh, it's a real guy. And then uh, and I thought maybe it was someone like, like, you know, how Dell has passed away. I thought maybe it was someone of his era. Mm-hmm. And then I come up here, he's like, oh, he started the Magnet. It was like, that theater I want to study at, he, he co founded it. <laughs> like, I didn't even yeah. know it. Um, so it's just like wild. From my perspective, it's got to be wild from your perspective, especially since you kind of don't want the, 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 mystical guru uh, sort of perspective of you out there, but you have a, arguably the second most popular form of long-form improv named after you. How is that? Well, that's just strange. I mean, but like, you know, trying to keep in perspective, like, um, you know, that, uh, I don't know, that's, that's people's, you know, it's what other people think, you know, which... <laughs> Yeah. It's important, but not important. You know what I mean? Like, you can't take it too seriously. Right. Um, uh, I think, you know, for me, it's always been the same thing that, like, uh, it's always been about the work, and, like, that's mm-hmm. been the best reward of, like, are you doing good work? Um, and so I just, you know, um, uh, yeah, like, it, you know, it's kind of like, it doesn't, you know, somebody's got a reputation reputation and like they're just not you know living up to it it's like it's disappointing you know um so i do feel like pressure to try and you know come through but then i also have to say it's like well you know what it's just like this is some this is you know i i'm not asking people to treat me that way you know right and, right. and so um you're a very unassuming person as a matter of fact, when I saw you a few times around here, just when I first started studying here, um, you would speak to people, and you, we nodded hello um, after seeing each other a couple of times. I didn't know you were Armando. Like, I didn't... You're, you're just a, a man, nice man around here that I see. Uh, I wasn't wearing my cape, you know, <laughs> and didn't have my walking stick. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just... Um, I don't know, like, that's, I guess that's my personality, like, like, because, um, you know, I really came at it from, like, uh, you know, I wanted to go to film school because I like directing things, like mm-hmm. being on that side of stuff, not that I wanted to be in front of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think I'm just more comfortable, you know, being an average, ordinary person, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, it's this kind of thing, it's just like... Humanizing. Yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes I end up doing a show and it's like a shitty show. (laughs) And I just feel terrible about it, but it's just like, 
you know, everybody ends up doing crappy shows, you know? Like, yeah. Um, everybody bombs in comedy, no matter yeah, how big they get. it's going to happen. Yeah. You know? Um, it is an interesting thing. I mean, it's... Uh, a buddy of mine, is in, uh, he's a musician, was saying... There's, he's actually been on the podcast a couple of times, but he was actually saying, uh, you know, in music, people, uh, professionals, they practice until they can't get it wrong. But professional comedians, stand-up or improvisers, you're going to get some stuff wrong sometimes. Like yeah. it's just not the same sort of. But you can you can try as hard as you can to practice, so you can't get it wrong. But mistakes are just going to be made because it's not like playing a song where you know how yeah. it goes. Well, it's it's that thing of playing a song, but writing a song. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, musicians, you know, play until they can't get it wrong. But when it comes to writing material, you know, they get it wrong all the time because you're like, okay, <laughs> exactly. Someone puts out an album and they have two hits on it. Yeah, and a bunch of fillers. <laughs> yeah, but that's still a very successful album. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but like, <laughs> you, people forget about the authorship part of it. You know? Right, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, is your love of directing what got you into teaching improv? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that and just, um, uh, part of it too is just like, um, uh, you know, when I started doing the Armando, then people started asking me to coach them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So is that one of those like fringe benefits of like, Hey, wow, you're in this successful show. Um, and, you know, I hadn't coached anybody before, so I didn't know if I could do it. You know, people are just like um, assuming, you know. Uh, and so I just kind of got into that. And, like, I went through a lot of trial and error process to kind of find what it is that I do, you know, how to do it. But, you know, that's what coaching led to then, you know, teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like very good at it. And I, well, please thanks. excuse the elevation. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pedestal. I know you know that, that's uncomfortable for people, but you know that's you you have a unique gift at it. I think. Yeah, like that to me, like I feel like yeah, I'm a very good teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, like I don't feel you know I'm less uncomfortable about that. Mm-hmm. You know because this kind of thing is like. You know, they could have named that show after anybody, you know, mm-hmm. and anybody could have been somebody who had, like, some funny stories, and it would have been, you know, same deal. But, yeah. like, I do think, like, in terms of teaching, um, you know, I, I do think there's, you know, uh, um, there's something unique that I do, which um, I just don't know where it comes from, but, um, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely proud of... of my abilities with that. Yeah. You know? Well, you have a knack for cutting to the chase, getting to the point, and and saying something that uh, is is eye opening for the performer, but simplifying it in such a direct way. Yeah, um, that is something that I imagine is hard to teach, but yet you do teach coaching and teach teaching. Yeah, I think the thing about it was maybe you know. It's because I had such trouble learning uh, growing up. So for me, uh, you know, I had some good teachers and I had like a lot of just kind of average teachers or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like I felt like it was very difficult, you know, f- uh, for me to learn. So it's just, I guess I come at it from how would I want somebody to explain it to me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and 
um, you know, make it super understandable to somebody as thick-headed as I am, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm the sort of the dummy test of, like, if I can make myself understand it, then, then I'm being clear, you know? I get it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you had a, a note for me in the director's uh, Vente uh, series that I got to be a part of, where it was something, or for one, notes that you were giving in practice, I had just studied for eight weeks the Vente and thought I kind of got the ins and outs, but you were still giving, you know, notes that were completely eye-opening. It was like, oh, that's a totally different avenue in this that I didn't realize was there. And then in the show, like, you know, after, after show notes, you gave me a note about, uh, you know, like always getting in the mix and, uh, you know, you don't want to stay on the bench and get cold because then we get off the bench, you hard to get hot again. It was like, wow, that's such a good way to put that (laughs) you know like so many people have said before of like yeah just go out there and just do something and it never felt satisfying but the way you put it it was like oh that's the thing people have been trying to explain for you (laughs) yeah well analogies is is one of those things like uh, i could come up with a million analogies but like it's it's helpful because it's just you know i don't know when i teach coaching and teaching um I tell people like say it a bunch of different ways because people understand things differently. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I can make a basketball analogy of just like you know, get out there and start taking some shots because you're gonna get cold. Mm-hmm. Or I could be like, hey, you know, it's like after a breakup, you got to get there and start having some dates and you know, <laughs> yeah. don't convince yourself that you're like a, a toad, you know, <laughs> uh, or you know, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, that's. They're both helpful, I see, because that is like the thing people do. I do it like, oh, I have nothing but bad ideas. That's me convincing myself I'm a toad. Yeah. I just need to get out there and uh, swipe right on a few people and think, you yeah. know what? I deserve them. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I can be with them. But it's just better to be in motion, you know. Right. Because then at least whatever momentum you can mm-hmm. correct. You can, right, build off of that momentum too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Harder to move a rock that's sitting still than yeah. it is to move one that's already No moving. laws of inertia. Right, I'm right. Sure, I'm sure Mick Napier would have a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah. you know? Or Lewis Cornfeld. Or, or yeah. Um, so, is it, like, what was it that brought you to New York? Uh, the UCB did. Okay. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, because you were, st- you were teaching there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they had me start off to be their first teacher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they had just got signed for the TV show. And mm-hmm. they'd been teaching classes and, and renting, uh, you know, theater space from, uh, from uh, a place called Solo Arts, which was like a little 40-seat loft theater uh, in Manhattan. And um, so they were like renting Thursday nights and Saturdays and Sundays. So... Um, you know, so they're starting production on their TV show and they needed somebody to take over classes. Well, they weren't able to. I get mm-hmm. it. Weren't you also writing on the show or something? Um, in, the, in the second and third season. Okay. Because they did the first season. Um, and um, then there was like a bit of a break. You know, Comedy Central was deciding whether to renew them or not. Um, and it was also a very tumultuous kind of first season uh, because their, you know, sort of writing assistant, uh, you know, moved on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it was just like, 
they're a very contentious kind of group, you know, and so... <laughs> kind of like the Beatles or <laughs> yeah. the police or something? Yeah, like yeah, more like the police. <laughs> I think the Beatles probably got along more than... Early on, especially. Yeah, that's a good point. The police... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they just can't... They're so, they're so brilliant, they can't stand each other. Yeah, isn't that a weird thing yeah. about... And, and I, I, I feel like it's seen in a more... The most pure way with the Beatles, where it's yeah. like... Okay, two of them are already genius writers. Yeah. And then by the end, George was also a genius writer. Yeah. And and they all just about could play multiple instruments and could write a whole album of of their own whereas in the beginning they they had to do half the album had to be covers, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that gets hard but things change cuz it's like George doesn't want to be treated as like, oh, just he's a little brother. Like, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, uh, uh, you get to have sensibilities that you want to see happen, but mm-hmm. there's three other people who mm-hmm. have a say, and they also have, uh, certain sensibilities that they've developed that they want to see things come out in a certain way. And once you've got freedom and some, some measure of like ownership of your destiny, then you stop being kind of grateful or feel like you need the other people, you know, right. because it's sort of like, well, you know, we're the most famous band in the world, so I don't need to have this band, you know, because uh, I could do whatever idea I want, you mm-hmm. know. I could do my own record. So I why do I have to put up with, like, <laughs> right. people trying to, like, tell me, you know. But then again, then you get some really awful, awful work that comes afterwards, which yeah. is like... Yeah, oh, boy. Fogarty has some good solo stuff, but yeah. his best stuff was when uh, he was with... This is a bad example, because the other members couldn't create like he could create, but yeah. his best stuff was when he was with CCR, but that might have just been, mm-hmm. you know, it was still kind of like solo Fogarty, so CCR is not a great example, but um, yeah, you know, like, obviously, there's a certain excitement about uh, things that the Beatles made when they were together, mm-hmm. whereas people can listen to certain solo albums of Paul McCartney's or whoever's yeah. in the 70s and be like, eh, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> or, oh, There's oh, like one fine. song on there I like, but yeah. I don't really care for the others. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, but in some ways I think of UCB, it's like, they got better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're obviously, they didn't break up. They're still doing, I mean, they're separated, I guess. But there were some terms all, of separation. Their solo albums are much stronger. <laughs> right, right, that's true. You know. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but they, they'll get together, I guess, like they did the Carnegie Hall show for their yeah. anniversary. I know you moved on from them and, and co-founded a different theater before signing mm-hmm. The Magnet. Yeah. At this point, like when you you've seen two theaters start up mm-hmm. and uh, helped co-found one of those theaters, when you start Magnet, what was your goal for the students? What was your your mission? Well, I mean, I think the mission kind of remained the same, mm-hmm. you know, because like I felt it was the same mission of when I like hooked up with UCB. I was just like, well, you know. Um, there were certain things I really enjoyed about Improv Olympic, mm-hmm. um, but I had a lot of other ideas about things, mm-hmm. and I tried some of them at UCB, um, you know, and um, you know. But then it again, it was just that thing. I was like, it wasn't my theater; it was their theater. 
Uh, same thing happened with the, the next theater. It was just like, you know, I walked in saying like, hey, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. But again, um, it, you, you know, even if it's just two people in a partnership, just sort of like, it was real clear early on that this was not my theater. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it kind of felt like I was an employee still, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So that was like, okay, well, this is not going to happen. So it's kind of like the end of the Beatles, you know, it's everyone can kind of do their own thing or yeah. has their own direction they want to go. And Yeah. And so, I don't know. But the main thing was just that um, uh, I wanted to have a culture that reflected sort of the beliefs of improv, which is like, it was always strange to me that, you know, we can teach this stuff and we can get people to do that stuff on stage of like yes anding and supporting each other, making each other look good, you know, um, embracing truth, you know. Um, but in the organizations, um, you know, there'd be dysfunction. It's kind of thing like, well, you know, um, best idea should win in a business. And, you know, you should be able to kind of try stuff, mm-hmm. you know, not be afraid to experiment. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, and to be able to celebrate people and their differences and their different talents and things like that. Because, like, to me, like, I just don't like the idea of making anybody, you know, some kind of, like, uh, uh, you know, you're, like, the, the weirdo, you know. And, like, I would see that happen in certain people's classes where it's, like, you know, somebody might be struggling to, to do the improv. And then it was clear the teacher did not like that person, so everybody would just you know, follow the teacher's lead and that person would kind of be like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, made to be known that they're like, uh, sort of the, the leper in the class. And like, and, and I thought that was the same thing about, you know, just like this thing of everybody puts so much importance about being on a team and it's like, you know, you're not like a valid human being unless you're on a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, well, yeah, there's a lot of validation to it, but you know, when it comes to casting teams, there's a lot of people that could be on teams. And right. You get to the point where you just have to make some choices and mm-hmm. you, you make, make mistakes. Yeah, that too. And I just never thought that that should be something to make people feel less worth or anybody get depressed about. It's like, oh, you didn't make a team. Okay, well, you know, try again. Or, you know, if you like to improvise, find a way to improvise or go someplace else or... You know, and so to me, like, my goal was just, like, how can I create an organization where uh, you could sort of give people as many tools as you can to develop and try and get out of their way Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and just kind of all enjoy each other. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think even if somebody's not the greatest improviser, it's like, you sit down and talk to them, and they're like, "Oh, this kind of a cool person." You know, they got a cool background. This goes back stuff. to humanizing people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just don't see any reason why there should be anybody, uh, you know, that's an outcast. You know, and so I think like organizationally, so it's not a matter of like promising that everybody can do this thing. It's more about just you know making it fair, um, you know, and then it's up to everybody just to do their best and if they could do it great they can't you know I can't slam dunk you know I can't play professional basketball I'm not Michael Jordan I'll never you know I never would have been it wouldn't matter like doesn't make me a terrible person you know right uh, maybe it does 
Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've talked to a lot of students, and I asked them why they chose Magnet, and they I would say ninety some percent of the time they say I like the community. Mm. You know, it just the community is what really stood out to me here, and I, you know, sounds like you've you are continuing to accomplish your goal. But you're right. It, it can be real easy for people to get judgy in comedy yeah. and including improv, even though it, it starts with yes and. There's still people who get like, oh, this person's no good. And they, they do treat that person like they're the leper. And it's the opposite of treating them like they're the guru. They're kind of like opposite ends of the spectrum there. But in the end, you know, what we're talking about here is humanizing people, making everyone feel like you know, we're all people, we all have something unique to, to offer that is of value to this community that we're a part of. So, yeah. uh, you know, good on you. Let's create something together. We're okay. here now at the end of the podcast. We've uh, The theme has been really about demystifying or, or humanizing people okay. to a certain degree. So I don't know uh, exactly what we could create off of that specifically. Maybe there's some advice for uh, people who want to get on house teams or are getting on house teams and they have no idea what the future holds because we also talked about success. What are just some traits of a healthy sort of uh, mindset or mentality when trying to pursue comedy in a, in a big place? Be happy. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's the hardest thing. When people are happy, I don't know, they have a better time, they laugh mm -hmm. more. <laughs> I think your eyes are more open, you know what I mean? Like it's it's easier to be confident, you know? It's like, yeah. um, and so the thing is, is that like being happy in itself is like, it's a personal thing and, and uh, you know, and, and so everybody needs different, you know, different stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and so it's like, I don't know, going to therapy or mm -hmm. try and make your life the way you want to make it, you know? And so, like, being on a team is part of that. That's important. And I don't know, I guess the other thing is, is that a lot of times people are kind of afraid to admit their goals, mm -hmm. you know? Um, because it's sort of like, if I admit that I really want to be on a team and I don't make it on a team, then I'm going to be heartbroken. But if I could kind of always have mm -hmm. denial in my head... You know, then I could always say, it's like, well, you know, I didn't really try. And it's just like, to me, that's never like a good rationale, you right. know, but it is an excuse for people not to attempt to do their best. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. hey, you know, take classes, practice, make sure you get a good night's sleep before a tryout or whatever, or mm -hmm. before a show, be ready, you know, um, be kind of open and excited about things. So there's, that's a lot of stuff that... Is, is more about accepting and, and mm -hmm. being open to sort of your own goals and, and open to your own happiness than it is about like exertion, you know? Like, right. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here still it goes back to something we talked about earlier with success. There just being these different levels of success. You know, someone can think, oh, you know, SNL or bus, and then they don't get an SNL, but yet they, they're like making a living as a comedic actor and they don't see the value in that. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously there's some things there that the person can work out and the same can be said for someone who is treating being on a house team like being on SNL. Yeah. Um, and, and I've heard people talk about 
how someone got there. They, they got the thing they want, and they're still not happy. And it's because of various reasons. But if we're going to give people action steps on how to sort of avoid these pitfalls, what would those action steps be? Other than, you know, obviously there's being happy, but it's just the practical way to do that, to just maybe don't go to every show every night. Like, maybe do something outside of comedy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, go to, they just have to a balanced life. You know I mean? A balanced life is very important, yeah. Um, be Other healthy. hobbies. Um, uh, yeah, you know, surround your things self with things you love, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, being a fan of comedy, but being a fan of, like, you know, fiction or music or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because, like, it's wherever you can draw inspiration. Right. And to me, like, I think the times where uh, you that are good or a lot of times where I kind of do feel inspired, like, you feel like, oh, my goodness, like, this is a great... You know, this is a great movie. Or this is a great song, or like, like this really makes you realize, hey, we're living life. Um, I think you know, um, relationships too. You know, mm-hmm. like have good, healthy relationships and uh, be able to kind of like love and care about people. Um, you know, so none of this is like real practical advice, but I guess you know. Well, I don't think it's what you've said so far is not. Impractical. I mean, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's been impractical. I think it's. Um, I think we just, you know, live in a world where you think like, oh, if we walk, watch a TED talk, we'll be all right. But yeah. you know, that's not reality. Yeah, um, that's impractical. But <laughs> what people want now is impractical. But you know, taking some time for yourself to enjoy some other things outside yeah. of comedy or outside of. It's just that don't hold on to the goal too tightly. Right. Because I've seen those kind of improvisers where it's just like, they're just, you know, anything that's not comedy or improv, they just like eliminate. And Ooh. and then you're like, I don't like hanging out with you. You know, like, I don't want to, <laughs> why would I want to be on a team with you? Well, and, I think I, there's been so much talk of like how like Bach or whoever became a genius at a genius composer and it was a lot of it was because they didn't have any other other distractions mm-hmm. and yes it was because they just spent hours and hours a day working on it yeah but they also didn't have a bunch of friends um and you have friends around you so you yeah. kind of have to think about like what's the reality here like you, it's a difference between an abstract yeah i mean like music's emotional too but like <laughs> But the, the raw material is relationships and right. experiences. So it's kind of like, if you're not having any of those, mm-hmm. you know, how can you improvise, uh, you know, uh, a great scene between a husband and wife if you've got no, you know, if you're not in touch with, like, that kind of knowledge or, mm-hmm. you know. Or just how you relate to other people. Yeah, or how can you, if you're not in touch with your own feelings, mm-hmm. you know, how can you sort of be a truthful and emotionally truthful improviser, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know anything about the world, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I do think, yeah, it is sort of like, you got to do all this other stuff besides just, you know, read books and follow (laughs) the rules and, you know, um, so I guess what we're saying here is, uh, try to seek some mental health. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and try to seek some things that are just out in the world that yeah. are outside of this this passion you have 
uh, explore some other passions, mm-hmm. um, uh, educate yourself on just how the world has existed. Not yeah, I have other things to <laughs> look forward to too, you know, because yeah. it's like this is something that might work out or this might be delayed or, mm-hmm. you know, but there's got to be other things you got going. Because mm-hmm. I think the thing is, is that, you know, uh, there's something about the universe when it's like when you're desperate, when it's just like, wow, I really need to. I need to get this, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to put all my hopes on it. Um, you definitely don't get it. Right. But the minute you kind of like just relax and just like, okay, you know, uh, all right, this would be great if I do it, you know, and it happens, you know, like, right. um, so, you know, uh, yeah, I think it's just try and live a good life if you can. Right. It's, it's something that can just be hard to pinpoint but yeah you know like when people are going for a particular goal and they're having all these amazing experiences that they're not appreciating because they haven't achieved their goal yet um it's hard to slow down and appreciate those things around you but you kind of have to force yourself it's something you have to practice mm-hmm. to, to sit down and say like what are things i can be thankful for and what is going on around me right now that i can just be happy is going on and uh if I don't achieve my goal, at least I had all these amazing things that have happened. Yeah. That's, you know, a hard thing to accomplish, but, you know, it, I think one thing I want to avoid is going through a time period that was really great and being miserable the entire time yeah. and only looking back on it with joy. You know, like I yeah. look back on one, eight years ago when I was knocking around in South Carolina still learning comedy. And at the time, I might have been depressed or miserable, but I look back and it's like, oh, those are the good old days. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing now. It's like, you know, maybe I haven't achieved my goal yet. Yeah. But I don't want to have to, I don't want to wait to enjoy my life. Yeah, you're right. Because you can't make things conditional. That is right. Everything has to be perfect or I can't, you know, enjoy things or be happy or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I can't create, I can't do whatever. So, um, you know, I think you got to try and be doing that every day of your life if you can. Mm-hmm. And um, I think especially now, it's like a really rough time. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's like even more important that we can, you know, care about each other and, you know, kind of preserve the things that are important and joyful in life, you know, despite like all the doom and the gloom that's hanging over us, you know? Absolutely. There are things to enjoy. Yeah. There it is. I'm going to consider that advice okay. the thing we created. So. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope that is fine. It was great. Okay. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, sure. You're welcome. Thank you. My takeaways from that are live life to its fullest, be good to other people, be good to yourself so you can be happy. Sometimes it's easier said than done to be happy, but the happier you are, the easier it is for you to do things. I was actually just reading about how when you're stressed, it's harder to be creative. And it's so easy to live in a big city and look for work and try to make your way and try to find your way. And get stressed, you know, and if you're here for creative reasons, oh, goodness, how do you do it? Well, that's when we have therapy, I guess. (laughs) 
If you want to know more about the Magnet Theater, you can go to magnettheater.com, find out about shows and classes that are offered. You can also follow them on social media at Magnet Theater. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod. Links in bio. I hope this inspired and equipped you. And next week, we'll come back to try it again. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 